Between our first and our last breath, our life is a series of seasons. Every high and low is a season that shapes us. Growing up, there was little that was safe in my life. Extreme physical abuse marked my home of origin. I was sexually assaulted as a young teen. After being placed in a foster home at the beginning of my junior year, I saw that life could be different. Yet I still suffered frequent nightmares involving my parents and the man who assaulted me. Once I graduated, I found structure in the military and much of my anxiety was pushed down because I was going to control my own destiny. However, trying to actually control anything proved to be fictional. Later, despite being a Christian and having attended Bible college, I never fully trusted God because things never seemed to resolve themselves. I became defined by my pain. By 2019, I was in a very precarious position because my nightmares, hypervigilance, depression, and ongoing chronic nerve pain had left me in a very dark place where I honestly considered taking my own life. But when I was ready to give up, God showed up, and he basically said, I have not forgotten you. Shortly after this, I received a service dog free of charge. I found a Christian counselor who was transformative in my life. And most of all, I had a breakthrough moment, realizing that Christ himself was there with me in the midst of all my darkest suffering. God came through. He made a way and drew me again and again back to himself. Along the way, scripture really helped me refine and define my view of God and his role in my life. As I wrestled with God about how he worked, he continued his molding of my heart by allowing me to be broken and humbled. Slowly, I was learning to live and rest in the truth that God is always there. As the new and serious challenges of last year arose, I realized it was the first time I was honestly okay with whatever God chose to do. I am convinced that God needed to allow pain in my life, not only to refine me, but also to develop a deep compassion for those who are hurting. His word has impacted my heart in such a way that about six months ago, I was able to share with my counselor the fact that I had actually thanked God for all of it, literally everything, which is something that would never have happened even a year ago. This is God's healing in all my anxiety. How bold is that to get up and say, man, I've suffered trauma. And because of that, my whole life, I've dealt with anxiety. I've dealt with this stress. Uh, man, I, I want to know if some of you would be willing to join John right now. Um, maybe you struggle with anxiety on a daily basis. Maybe this is something for you that you've dealt with in a particular season. Uh, but, and I'm not going to make you do anything like stand up. All I want to do is just ask the question, how many of you guys are actually dealing with anxiety or have dealt with anxiety in a major way? Go ahead and raise hands. Okay. Okay. Yeah, go ahead and put your hands down. This is an issue that many of us deal with, and if you haven't dealt with it, uh, likelihood is that you will, you will deal with it. But here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to glorify our anxiety. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about, man, this is what being anxious is, and here's what it is. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to talk about how the gospel provides healing in the midst of our anxiety, amen? 
So what we're going to do is we're going to open up Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and let's look and discover and explore what God has to say to us in the midst of our anxiety in his words. Romans chapter 8, and here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to look at how to preach the gospel to our anxiety. How to preach the gospel to our anxiety, because here's what I know about you. You spend way too much time listening to yourself, listening to your own thoughts, and too little time preaching to yourself, speaking to your own thoughts, because I do the exact same thing. And what we believe about the gospel here at Rise is that the gospel is not just like this thing we proclaim on Sunday to like elevate our mood on that Sunday and like tweak our lives just a little bit. What we believe about the gospel and what is true in scripture is that the gospel is this, has this explosive power to reshape and transform every single dimension of our lives. And so Monday through Sunday, we should be preaching the gospel to ourselves. I don't care if you like literally were born in the church. When you wrestle with anxiety, this is what we preach to ourselves. And even as I say that, I want to be careful here and and just uh, kind of preface with this, that um, there are physiological realities to anxiety. And we do not just believe in theology. The Christian worldview and, and Christian theology has space for biology too. We believe in both doctrine and doctors, right? We believe in growing in spiritual maturity and also counseling. My wife's always telling me when I'm stressed out and I'm like anxious and all this stuff, she's like, maybe this is not just because like you're wrestling with some spiritual demon or something like that. Maybe you like have eaten a diet of solid like fried foods and like caffeine. Like that's all. And maybe you just need to drink like some water, eat some kale and take a nap. Like that's actually a thing. And so we believe in both. We're holistic beings. We can approach these things holistically. But here's what I'm convinced of, that the primary means that we should be dealing with all things in life is through the gospel. It's through the gospel. And so we're going to look at three gospel truths that deal with our anxiety. And these are gospel truths that we may not uh, centrally consider when we consider the gospel. Usually when we consider the gospel, we think about Jesus' death and resurrection, right? And how we are forgiven of sin and all of that. That is central and that is so important. But today, I want to look at some of the periphery ones that are addressed in Romans 8. And so again, uh, let's look at the text. We're going to go through the fall, the second coming of Jesus, and the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 18 in Romans chapter 8. It says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is God's word. Amen? Amen. The first thing I want you to see here is this. The doctrine of the fall of humanity. The doctrine of the fall of man. And, And why do I say the doctrine of the fall? Because in the gospel, the worldview that shapes the Christian life, uh, that Jesus is the center of, actually presents us, before it gets to the good news, something of some bad news. 
Okay, And that is the doctrine of the fall. He says here uh, a few things that I want to highlight. He says, for I consider the sufferings, and notice this, of this present time. There is this suffering going on, but it's, it's limited to this present time. And he kind of goes on to explain why in verse 20. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it. And then in the next verse, he talks about that the creation has been subjected to this bondage to corruption. Bondage to corruption. In the end there, he says, because of this, the creation groans. The creation groans. What are we talking about here? Uh, Paul in this passage is actually referencing this uh, story out of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, after God created the first human beings, Adam and Eve, uh, they go on to reject God as their authority. They go on to spit in the face of God, and all of humanity in this instance falls. But not only all of humanity, what takes place is the created order itself is sort of plunged, submerged into ruin. The created order is broken by sin. You guys track it with this. That we live in a world that has actually fallen, such that like everything is broken. Not just our own hearts and depravity, which is true, but also this depravity has infected and touched. Reality itself is fractured at the core. And so the cells in our bodies and the comets in our solar system are out of orbit with their creator. And this is the reality we live in. And so some of you guys are thinking, how does this help my anxiety? Like, what? How does this set me free from anxiety? Here's how it sets you free. Every part of the gospel, even the difficult ones, actually are liberating. And here's why. Because so many of us in our anxiety, in our suffering, as Paul references here, these things that cause stress and fear inside of us, this flight or fight, man, they are because of our unrealistic expectations our unrealistic expectations. And I'll give you some examples of this, but man, we, ha- we approach life sometimes. If you're not a Christian, this is especially true for you, but those of us who are Christians as well, we approach life as though everything can possibly be perfect. And daily we go about and we're like, man, why aren't things perfect? And this doctrine comes in and says, man, take a deep breath. Those are unrealistic expectations. Three examples of these. Number one is for my success. How many of you like, man, you wrestle, I'm not asking for a raise of hands, but with anxiety, because like I, I need to achieve. And if I'm really honest right now, this is me. I've told someone before that I wake up every single day uh, feeling that I need to earn my existence through what I achieve, right? That sounds really awful, and that's because it is, <laughs> okay? That's actually what's going on in my soul. I'll show you this meme real quick. Uh, three pictures here. We'll start with the first one. This is a very sad, stressed out man. Okay, and he is looking, he has discovered the book on how to stop stressing about tasks. And so this stressed out man is looking for answers. He's found the book on it, you guys. And so he's very excited. He's looking for answers. And then we see in this next picture uh, what the book actually, what the secret to stop stressing is. He says, well, just complete the tasks. You know, like everything will be better if you just do the tasks. And so in the final picture here, it shows us he's still a very sad and very stressed out man because the book itself is not helpful, is it? Like I wake up every day and I'm like, I need to prove that I deserve to live on earth. 
And so I, if I'm not perfect, I, I at least need to be very impressive, okay? And so I got this task and I want to get it done. And I like write things down that I did just to feel like I did a little bit more. Like, yeah, I did that this morning, you know? Like I fed the kids, check. You know, like I'm earning the right and I'm anxious inside. And what I need is not more of this. You just do the tasks because the doctrine of the fall says, man, the tasks are never going to end. And you will never satisfy that deep and ancient ache of your soul by doing and trying and being better. You just won't. And this isn't bad news. This is good news because you can take a breath. You weren't made to trust in you. Number two, uh, this is a big one, especially right now, that we have too high expectations for our safety. For our safety. Man, how many of us struggle with fear and anxiety? Man, I want to be safe. I want to make sure that nothing gets me internally or externally. And so we literally put cameras on our doorbells now. Like we put like, like all the padding on our kids when they go out to ride the bike and we're like, well, actually don't go to the neighborhood. Just like stay right here. Just in circles, bro. Like you got to stay safe. We're protecting. We pad our lives. We've got to live in the safest neighborhood in the suburb. And I'm not saying wisdom isn't important or wisdom isn't right. Like I, do be wise, right? Like wear a seatbelt. I'm all for that. Eat kale or whatever. But here's the truth. Like no amount of kale will ever keep you safe. We are in a fallen and broken reality. We actually need to digest this a little bit and take a breath and say, man, I wasn't made to trust in me. And here's the last one. We have too high expectations for other people. We just have too high expectations for other people. Man, the youth kids in my small group, they, man, if they make a mistake, I'm like, what do I do with this? I'm like, bro, welcome to reality. Like, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to sin. The gospel is not for people who do not sin. Jesus came for sinners. Amen? And we live in a broken reality. We have too high expectations for our children. We're like, man, they need to be perfect and get straight A's and also win at all the sports. And like, what if they fall away? Or what if they like sin against God? Or what if they drink or smoke or hang out with people who do? Like, what are we going to do in that moment? You know what you need to do is you need to take a deep breath and say, man, they are fallen sinners who need a savior. We have too high expectations for our marriage and for our spouse. And we're riddled with just fear and anxiety and like, what am I gonna do if they fail? And I have to control them and I have to pad their life and it's unhealthy because we were not made for this family. You were not made for this. And I'm gonna say something difficult, but I think it needs to be said. Our anxiety is often a physiological manifestation of our false belief that we are God instead of God. And you weren't made for this. I want you to imagine uh, today, if you're, if you're a Christian especially, or maybe you are literally here doing this, you enter the marketplace of ideas and all the world religions are there, right? So you enter this marketplace of ideas and you're saying, which one will satisfy my soul? Which one will heal me? Which one brings? And so you enter, and this one, this one was very compelling for me when I was like, you know, 15, teenager age, is Buddhism. Very popular here in the Northwest is Buddhism, right? And so you look at Buddhism and, and it's got some good things and it has the teaching of dukkha, which is this idea of like suffering and the whole thing is wrapped around, the system is wrapped around. How do I alleviate suffering for myself and others? And what does Buddhism say? It says you follow this eightfold path. And if you just follow this eightfold path, eventually you will become an enlightened being. And then after enlightenment, you will step into nirvana and experience full peace. 
And there's a thread of good in there and a thread of truth, but here's the reality. That is a broken system that will never satisfy what your soul needs because in that system, you save you and you are God. And then we come to humanism. Perhaps the most, uh, uh, you know, uh, the most popular ideology of our days is really a religion. Humanism says what? With enough information, science, and technology, eventually we will evolve as human beings, and we will usher ourselves into a kind of utopia. Like all we need is just progress, and then we'll evolve. And the reality is, what is it saying? It's saying you save you because you are God instead of God. And only the gospel says that Christ alone can save and rescue us from this fallen reality fractured at the core. That is what the doctrine of depravity, that's doctrine of the fall actually teaches us. And this is good news because when you wake up and realize, like, I can't save me, there is still hope in the name of Jesus. We need hope outside of ourselves. Uh, my son, Ollie, uh, you know, last year, he's our oldest boy, and he loves creatures and, like, like uh, wild crats. And so he brought in a caterpillar, which caused me anxiety. And... <laughs> So this little caterpillar, he had a name, and uh, I think his name was Finn. I don't know why, because he's, like, not a fish. And so, um, and we were waiting for him to turn into a butterfly and feeding him, like, you know, grass and just hoping and praying. And one day, Finn died. It was very sad. Yes, aw, so sad. Finn passed away, went on to a better life. Uh, not a butterfly life, but a resurrected life. <laughs> and so, um, but Finn died, and, and we looked at Ollie, and you know we didn't tell Ollie? We didn't tell him, hey, buddy, hakuna matata. Like, death is a good thing. It's just the circle of life because that's utter nonsense. We didn't tell him, man, you just need to, like, exercise and do Pilates and do biotechnological research, and one day you'll live forever. Like, you control you, bro. That will utterly save. We didn't tell him that nonsense. We taught him about the entropy and how the world is falling apart, and death is our enemy, and Christ is our only hope. That's what we teach our kids. We teach them the gospel. There's these things called catechisms in history, and they're like a, a question-response thing. I really encourage you to look into them. One of them, the Heidelberg Catechism, has this question. question is this. What is our only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, you are not equipped to hold the universe together but you are invited to hope in the one who does. You are invited to hope in the name of Jesus. And so this is the doctrine of the fall, and it heals us in the midst of our anxiety. Not fully, but it lowers the bar of our expectations, which are unrealistic and unbiblical. But we can't just leave ourselves with like, well, things are terrible. And so just like suck it up, because you know we live in a fallen universe. That's not the end of the gospel. Paul goes on to tell us what the very end of the gospel is. And this is number two, that Christ's coming again. Christ's second coming. Christ's second coming. Um, so, uh, so few sermons actually deal with Christ's second coming, but this is core and it's doctrinal. Jesus came once in his incarnation bodily. He came to save us from sin and death by dying on our behalf for our sin on a cross in Rome. And he died there for us, for sinners, and he resurrected from the grave. 
And then later he ascended to heaven, and this is our great hope, that he is ruling and reigning right now, and the gospel is advancing, and hearts are being transformed and believing. But one day, that same Jesus is not going to leave us to just being saved in a broken reality. You know what that Jesus is going to do? Jesus one day is going to crack open the sky, and he is coming again. And he is going to renew the living and the dead. And, and, and this is what Paul considers. He talks about this in verse 18. Going back now, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the glory of Jesus coming back and the resurrection taking place on that day. And what he says here is he essentially uses a metaphor. He's like, I consider these two things and I put them on a scale. He says, man, the, the, the suffering that we're so afraid of and causes us anxiety when I put that on one side and I put the glory that is to be revealed in Jesus, you know what happens on that scale? Poof, Christ, his glory, the resurrection hope, it outweighs the sufferings that we can experience in this life. And so this is where we meditate. He says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And so what is that glory? We, we see him elaborate in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing. The trees are waiting, you guys. The plants are waiting. The animals are waiting. The galaxy is waiting, and they're longing, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Mark that well in your Bibles, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. Now, we know what that is. Because of him who subjected it, now notice this and underline this as well. It says, him who subjected it, that is God. God pronounced the curse as a result of our sin. And so God is over the fall. And then it says this, in hope, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Why is it hopeful when God curses reality? Why is it hopeful that God allowed us to plunge ourselves into sin and brokenness because our God is brilliant and he is sly. And our God rigged the curse with the hope of Christ. What he did in that moment is he actually, in Genesis chapter three, already gives us a promise of the gospel. He says one day, Jesus is gonna crush the head of the serpent, that's Satan, that's our sin and our, our accuser of our sin, and then he is going to return to finish the job, and Satan will be eradicated, evil will be done away with, and we are going to be, he says, revealed. Now, what does he mean by the revealing of the sons of God? What does he mean by the glory of the children of God? What he's talking about there is the resurrection of all of us who believe. And today, all you need to do to experience that on that day is to believe on Jesus. This is what C.S. Lewis tells us in light of this. You have never talked to a mere mortal. You have never talked to someone who is a mere mortal. This is the resurrection hope that we are going to live eternal lives before an eternal God in a renewed world. That is our hope. As a matter of fact, one day, as you are wrestling with your anxiety, and I am wrestling with mine, one day you are going to see Jesus crack open the sky. And one day you are going to hear the sound of the soil ruffle. You are going to hear the sound of urns shattering as God brings, breathes life into the dust and brings beauty from ashes. One day, this is our great hope. 
And all of the beautiful stories of history have spoken to this. Like, I don't know about you, but I watch a lot of Disney princess movies. (laughs) How many of you guys just watching a bunch of that? You're weirdos, okay? Or you're a girl dad, all right? Like me. And so now that I'm a girl dad, I just, I'd be watching that little mermaid, you know? I'm watching Beauty and the Beast, and we're just vibing there because I get to sit with her, you know? I get to sit with Capri, and so I'm watching these movies. And at the end of every single movie, you know what happens? You guys know what happens, right? You see all the twinklies, right? Ursula is defeated. And then you see the twinklies, and everybody gets swirled up into it. And it's like, ah, ah. And it's like, oh, my goodness. And ba-da-da. And then what happens? And Little Mermaid's like tail fin thing that prevented her from having the relationship with her prince is totally removed. And she is giving renewed legs, right? And she is ushered into a whole new reality, right? Like this is, and, and what happens at the end of Beauty and the Beast? Man, the beast, he's just this rough and he's, he's, he's wrestling internally. He wants to be a good dude, but he can't because he's a beast, you know? And it's just like, all of a sudden, it's like, do, 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 and all the sparklies. And what, is the, what do the beast become? The beast becomes, yet again, a soft man of flesh. And Mrs. Potts, she is turned into a woman. And all the, all the people, what happens there, you guys? <laughs> What's happening there? Church family, is the curse is being reversed. And hear me on this. We are drawn into these stories. And by the way, the narrative of the curse being reversed, that goes back into antiquity. Like Walt Disney didn't just come up with that one day. Like this is something that sort of like comes out of the deep place in our hearts that knows that this story is true. Like listen to me, you are drawn into that. You long for that because there's something in your heart that has always been waiting for it. And the Bible comes in and says, that moment is coming. Revelation 21 says it this way. Then I saw, and just let your mind comb through these words carefully. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea, which for Jews was a picture of evil, was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, this present time, The former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, who has all authority, says, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are not fairy tales, my family. They are not fairy tales, my friends. These are trustworthy and they are true. You know that one day Jesus is going to come back and perhaps the first thing that is going to happen and the first thing that you might see with your new resurrected eyes is the beautiful eyes of Jesus as they wipe away your tears. Consider who Jesus is. He's wiping tears in his incarnation and he's coming back to wipe your tears in the resurrection. This is what Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible for children, I love this little Bible. Uh, She describes how Mary, um, Jesus' friend, is coming back from Jesus' tomb, realizing that he has resurrected and is in some senses starting the coming resurrection. She says, Mary says this, 
she asks this question, are all the sad things really coming untrue? Is he making even death come untrue? Listen, you might be a skeptic today. You might be somebody who says, like, this is a bunch of mythological nonsense. I remember thinking that too. My job is not to make you Christian. My job is not to change your heart. Uh, I can't do that. Only the Spirit can do that today. And maybe he's doing that right now. But my job is to persuade you and to argue for the reality of the gospel. And I might just ask you this, even if you're a skeptic here, don't you want this to be true? Don't you want this resurrection hope? I want this to be true. As a matter of fact, uh, something that I wrestle with uh, makes me anxious. It's actually difficult for me to talk about. I was wondering if I should talk about it. Is uh, my son, Remy. Um, my older son, he's the super confident one, right? Just born with all the bravado and manliness and everything. He's a tough guy. And my son, Remy, he, he's the sweet one. He's the tender bear in our house. And uh, he's always been a little more introverted, um, but we have decided and proclaimed over his life that he is the bravest boy we know. I want to show you a picture of him here. Um, this is little uh, Remy, bravest boy I know. He drew a picture of our family there. And uh, Remy is uh, wearing glasses because, uh, and his glasses are crazy, crazy thick. Um, and they're thick. Uh, my wife actually has bad eyes too, um, and that's how I got her to marry me. She, like, doesn't know what I look like. And so I just keep, like, getting the wrong prescription and praying. And, so, but, uh, and his eyes are actually worse than hers. Um, and she was just aghast. Like, what prescription do I get for him? Like, is that even on the charts? And uh, you're, you're asking yourself, like, you're looking at this boy. He's, like, three, and you're going, well, he can't read yet, can he? Like, are you guys savants? No, he can't read. Uh, but we know that his eyes are like this um, because... One of his eyes, it turns inward, like really, really bad to where um, you can't even see his eye when you look at him. The one works and, and the other doesn't. So the doctor's like, oh, he needs, he needs glasses. And when he puts them on, they go straight again. And honestly, like I know this seems like not a big deal. To me, this is everything. I stress about this. I struggle through this. I pray about this all the time. Because as a dad, what do you want for your kid? You want him to be able to do school well. You want him to be able to throw ball with the boys and to like hang out and to, and to be an equal and, and to succeed. Um, I want someday for a girl to look in his eyes and find him beautiful, to find him uh, a joy. And so I think about this all the time and I'm just praying and I'm working and we put this little patch and we do all the things the doctors tell us. And I find myself just, just asking God, will you heal him? And maybe God will and maybe God won't. I can't guarantee that, but here's what I know. And here's the promise of Jesus that I cling to in my anxious moments, is that one day, little Remy Rambo, he is going to look at the world without glasses. He's gonna take those glasses off, and he is gonna look in the eyes of Jesus. And Jesus is going to make all things new, and he's gonna throw a ball, and he is going to not need any of this stuff that is participant with the fallen age that we live in because Jesus is coming back. Isaac Watts tells us this in his song, his Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. 
Listen, I can't promise you're going to receive a miracle for all the things that cause you anxiety for every suffering of this age, but here's what you can cling to. You can cling to the promise of Jesus' return, that one day your present pressures will be displaced by a flawless future. And that is what we cling to in these moments. And this is beautiful. And we need to ask the question, how do we know that this is true? Like this is a precious hope and it can bring healing in these moments. But how how do you know that this is going to happen? Ever wonder that? Like how can I really trust God? Maybe you don't like intellectually actually think through that, but you feel it deep down. Can I really trust that God is going to do this? Maybe he's there, but maybe he's not good. Well, Here's the final doctrine I want to look at that we, we need to preach to ourselves in these moments. And, and it's number three, the sovereignty of God. And we're going to talk about this because this is where Paul goes. And what does sovereignty mean? And the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is the idea that he controls every atom of this universe. I encourage you to write this down. You're going to need this. That he is in control of every atom of this universe. And our anxiety so often is the stress that's produced when the circumstances of life feel out of control. And like, Things are out of control. Is there anybody in charge? R.C. Sproul, he even leans into this question. He leans into, can God actually bring about these promises? If there is one single molecule in this universe, he writes, running, running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. This is the concern of our hearts, but R.C. Sproul goes on to say famously, there are no maverick molecules. Amen? This is good news. There are no maverick molecules, and we're talking about this because verse 28, if we skip down in the passage, tells us as much. Look at this. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Some of us say, man, why isn't God working things good? He's supposed to work all things good. No, this is the idea. He's saying God is able to work all things good, even the bad things. It's like we live behind this tapestry, right? This artwork. And all we see is the loose threads. And we're looking at all these bad things. And we're looking at the mixture there. And we're so confused. And it doesn't make any sense. But he's saying one day, God is working all things good. And you're going to see the other side of that tapestry. And you are going to realize that even these loose threads of your life and the pain and suffering actually was putting something brilliant together by the hand of God. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, this is eternity past, and it means that he loved us before we loved him. He also predestined, he set it up to be conformed to the image of his son. You're going to look like Jesus. You're going to be saved by Jesus. You're going to be transformed by Jesus in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. Jesus is doing this. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is he talking about here? This is what scholars call the the golden chain of salvation. And what they mean is this, that from eternity past to eternity future, God has rigged your life. God has wired you for the salvific work of Jesus. And one day he's going to bring that work to completion. And that is the good news of Jesus, you guys. That is the promise that he is sovereign over all of this. And one day he is going to save Do you believe in Jesus? 
All you need to do is put faith in this Jesus and he will save. And Christian, this is the hope you need to cling to when you are struggling with anxiety. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the promise we cling to in the midst of our anxiety. In the midst of your anxiety, remind yourself of God's sovereignty. It feels out of control, but God is in control. I can't trust myself. I can't trust this world, but there is one who I can trust. Uh, a little while ago, uh, Jason took a few of us to a like, kind of conference for ministry and all this stuff. And so we're like, let's just roll together, save the gas. We jump in Jason's car. And uh, <clears throat> I like forget this about myself because I don't ride in the back of cars often. Uh, but I am like, to a very unhealthy degree, like I struggle with motion sickness. And it's like genetically wired in me. My, my mom, when I was growing up, before I realized this about myself too, she would say, I get motion sickness from the rotation of the earth. She's like, oh gosh, like, I can't. Like, and I was like, mom, what a loser. You know, and then like I grew up and I was like, oh gosh, like help me Jesus. Like I just get motion sickness and then I, I forget and then I get in the back of a car and I'm like, oh, I remember now. And so like, here's a picture where I was sitting. I'll just show you this. I'll be honest, like even looking at this, like I get sick looking at this image. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, okay, three of you, cool. It's just me and my anxiety and struggles. I'm like looking out at this and I just, I'm turning green. Kristen, you know, a friend told me later, she's like, I noticed that you were green, but I just thought I might not like pay attention to it. And like just pray in a tongue by myself somewhere. And I'm like, I'm just like, oh, like I don't feel good. I'm trying to hide it. I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And so um, I'm, I'm feeling sick. I'm, I'm going to die. <laughs> and so you know where I look the whole time? Uh, we teach our kids who have the same thing. We're like, look out the front window. But I don't take my own medicine. I actually uh, look at the GPS up front, and we'll zoom in on that. And the GPS are awesome, and it, it makes me more sick. But here's what's important about the GPS. The GPS has this cool feature where it kind of shows you where the traffic is, right? And the little red this new thing where it's like, oh man, I know that we're stuck here for right now. But it also shows you where there's a clearing up ahead. And it shows you that, that there is an end in sight. And all of these things that are making you motion sick are actually going to come to an end. And hear me on this. Some of you guys are spiritually motion sick from the things that cause you anxiety today. And here's what Paul is telling us. That one day all of these trials are going to fade away. One, one day there is a clearing coming and one named Jesus will crack open the sky and he will make all things new. And I'll admit, this is difficult. We can preach these things to our heart day in and day out. Um, and so I want to conclude just noticing one last little piece he says there. Yes, we are to preach this to ourselves, but sometimes even preaching doesn't quite do it because we are also made for prayer. We are made for prayer. It's what he says here in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Or 
We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, that's you and me, according to the will of God. He says that the Spirit has searched your heart. Another place, he says the Spirit has searched the heart of God. And when you don't know what to pray for, here's a cool promise for you, that the Spirit knows what to pray for you. Amen? Man, like he has been praying for you before you were praying for you, before you were preaching to you. How good is our Savior? How good is Jesus? And so right now, kind of in the spirit of that, a little different, but in the spirit of that, uh, my good friend Zach's coming up. And uh, we're sinners, man. We're broken. We live in this broken world. And so we need guiding. We need the Spirit's guiding, and we need to minister to one another in this way. He's going to do what we call kind of a guided prayer. It's nothing like, you know, magical about this, but there's something powerful about it. And he's going to just pray. He's going to pray over these truths, and he's going to pray over you. And um, as he does, just encourage you. Some of you, you really need to pray this out loud. Like some of you actually need to say these words. You say it quiet, but like recite it out loud. There might be a few of us who are like, I'm not ready for that. Pray it in your heart and let him wash over you through the prayers of this church and over your heart. Amen. Church, would you pray with me? Bow your heads. Lord God, we are thankful to be in your house today. We are thankful that no matter the season, you are God and you are good and you are sovereign and you conquer all things. Lord, I pray right now that we as a church would identify that the world's broken. Lord, would we let go of any hope we have in a world that is flawed and decayed and broken, Lord God, right now? Lord Jesus, I pray for every one of us in this room that we would not put our hope on man-made things. Break us of that right now, Jesus. Break us of that right now, Lord. Lord, that we would recognize the world for what it is, false promises that will never save us. Jesus, I pray right now in your hope in our lives. Lord God, that the anxiety we feel, the things that we worry about, that we would let that, Lord God, that we would submit that to your feet because we know that you are the king of it and we have a hope and a second coming in you, Jesus. Lord, we know without a shadow of a doubt that you will return. And when you do return, that you will wipe away every tear that there will be no more mourning, no more crying, that there will be no more anxiety in our heart any longer because you are King of kings and Lord of lords and you dwell with us. But Lord, until that time, I pray that we would be so focused on you that our eyes would always be on you and that we would recognize your sovereignty, that we would recognize that you are in control and that we would recognize that you are our only hope. 
that we can hope in you here and now, that we can reach out to you here and now. Lord God, right now in this moment, I pray that you are moving hearts back to you. Lord, those that may not have spoken a word to you in months would right now speak out loud to you, Jesus, King of Kings, and know that you are God and that you are good and that fact that you are listening is crazy because you are this amazing, powerful creator that takes the time to bend an ear to his people. So Lord, I pray that you would move that now, that you would move those hearts, move their spirit back to you. And Lord, that it wouldn't just be for a moment, but that it would be spark something that would last a lifetime. You are King of Kings. Our hope is in you. We praise you and worship you together as a church. In your name, amen.